We're going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 40 and starting at verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level and rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass and their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. This is the word of the Lord. Should we pray together? Is this, this is working, isn't it? Good. Father, we ask that again as we look at these words from a long time ago, and yet words looking to the future as it was for Isaiah, some of it past for us, some of it still future, we pray that you'd help us. You'd help us to tune in. You'd help us to understand. You'd help us to hear your word to us through uh, this book, the Bible. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure this never happened to you, but I occasionally, when I was small, would be sent to my room because I'd been sufficiently naughty for that to happen. There is a sort of legend in the Dival family uh, of an incident where this happened, the, the legendary rice pudding incident. You know what it's like. You get rice pudding, you put jam in the middle, you're a small boy or a small girl, and you think, oh, wouldn't it be nice to sort of stir it a bit until it goes into that kind of pink goo? And so the instruction came, stop doing that, and I ignored it. Stop doing that, I ignored it. If you do that again, I will tip that over your head. And I think I maybe took another couple of normal mouthfuls before I resume making swirling patterns. My dad reacted, but I reacted more quickly. And uh, I was on my feet by the time he had hold of the bowl, the, uh, bowl on my way to uh, the room. 
my room, and uh, I, so a sprint uh, ensued with me first, my dad following with a bowl of rice pudding, and my mum following behind me, behind us both, saying, no, don't, don't, I've just washed his hair, and I don't want to do it again. <laughs> Eventually, my mum's logic won the day, and uh, I, instead of the um, rice pudding on my head, which was the threat, uh, was confined to my room uh, to learn my lesson. Because being put away, uh, sort of banished, as it were, to your room as a child, it's partly punishment for something you've done wrong, but it's partly a kind of learning experience. It's go and think about what you've done and uh, learn what needs to change. Don't be so disobedient in the future. Now, the link with Isaiah, there is one, is that that is, in a much more serious way, the situation we are reading about as we open Isaiah. The people of Israel had been disobedient for hundreds of years to what God had told them about being his people and how to live well in the world. They've been disobedient over and over. And the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are him helping them to understand the seriousness of their situation that they were about to be banished and carted off into exile uh, by, into Babylon. Uh, chapter 39, just before this, um, uh, do, have, uh, do bring a Bible or um, get a phone with Isaiah on it. It's really, really helpful for the preacher to know that you can look down and see that this isn't just coming from me, this is coming from God's Word. I'm not saying that as a nag for this week, but I'm not seeing many people with phones or Bibles open. Let's make sure we've got that sorted for next week, shall we? I know back home, I'm sure you all have. That's just easier maybe if it's just there next to your computer or your TV, isn't it? Um, but... Uh, 39, chapter 39, there's a whole chapter there. These envoys come from Babylon, their supposed peace envoys, and the king, Hezekiah, goes, oh, lovely to meet you. Let me show you all the treasures of Israel. And what does God say? Verse 6, if you've got it, nothing will be left. And so the second half of the book of Isaiah, starting here in chapter 40, is prophecies, visions, uh, hopes, dreams, promises for the Israelites to take with them, as it were, into this dark time they're going into, into this period of exile. Visions, images, promises to sustain them through the dark times, to sustain them when they were shut off and banished from everything that was familiar. I said last week, there's a reason why we're in this book of Isaiah at the moment. It's not difficult, is it, to see parallels with the situation that we may be facing in a few weeks' time as we go into a really peculiar winter with um, who knows what in terms of the uh, conditions we'll face. What does God say to keep his people in dark times? What does he say to sustain us, to give us hope, and comfort when it's hard. That's why we're looking at Isaiah, and Isaiah 40 is just such a good start, because, you see, as the exiles would have left the country, they'd been carted away as prisoners to Babylon, they must have wondered, well, is this it? Is this the end of all these promises we've had so far in the Bible that God has a purpose for a people? Is there any way back, or have we totally blown it this time? Have we out-sinned God's ability to forgive. 
And there may be times where we've asked similar questions to those kinds of questions. We may have gone through something in life or done something in life and we just wonder, well, is, is that it between me and God? Where do I stand now? Perhaps actually some of the last few months have revealed to us some of the dark places in our hearts or in our minds, our thoughts and the habits that we thought we'd shaken but they re-emerged during lockdown and we thought, oh goodness, again, am I ever going to shake this? Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Notice comfort my people, not all people, we'll come to that in a minute. Comfort for God's people, hope in dark places. Israel, um, the nation, they were sent not to their rooms, but into a much more serious place, into exile for 70 years. But there was some parallel. They were there to learn their lesson. And just like my mum and dad called me back to rejoin the family after a suitable period of time, so after 70 years, Israel would come back. They were still God's people. God was still their God. So verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, her sin has been paid for, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now that doesn't mean that 70 years of exile has sometimes sort of, somehow sort of cancelled out hundreds of years of rebellion. Any more than coming to church can make up for all the uh, sin we do in the rest of the week. It doesn't work like that. No, the idea of, of double is uh, it doesn't mean so much twice as much as um, like the double, um, like uh, an exact match, like you fold over a piece of paper, it's doubled over, and you've got one half and another half. You've got a stunt double, uh, or you've got a, a right hand and a left hand, and, and they're a match for one another. So it is with this idea of doubling, that God has done something which means that sin has been matched with the price that's paid for it. And so there can be freedom again. And so God speaks this wonderful message of comfort and hope to his people. But I want to say, sadly, for them as well as for us, we're very conscious, aren't we, of false promises, false horizons, promises that things will get better. Coronavirus will be all be done by Easter, I seem to remember some months ago. Promises that come to nothing. What makes this promise we're reading in the Bible any more secure than those promises we hear all the time? What gives it weight? Well, there are three voices here that tell us reasons why we can really trust this promise. They're in verse 3, in verse 6, and in verse 9. They point us to God and they give us reasons for confidence. They tell us God is coming for all people. They tell us God's word endures forever. And they tell us that God shepherds his people. Verses 3 to 5, God is coming for all people. The voice in verse 3 says, prepare the way for the Lord. When you have um, a, a, a VIP visitor, I know, the President of the United States, the Queen of England, 
they visit somewhere, the people there pull out all the stops. They, they get everything looking good, they fill in the potholes, they put out the flags, they plan the route, they clear the way, so that she can go straight to wherever she's supposed to be going. And it's the same here. This is the ultimate VIP visitor, God himself coming into human history, into planet Earth. And so what happens? Massive roadworks in the desert. That's what we see in verses 3 to 5. It's the valleys being raised, the, the, the mountains being leveled. I guess they put one in the other. And it's Isaiah saying to us, I think the idea is we get our shovels out and we join in the, uh, the work. We want to we wanna welcome God into our lives. And so we're preparing our hearts. We're clearing the obstacles. Get ready for God, says Isaiah. Then, 700 years later, when we get to the start of the New Testament, we read, uh, we read Matthew, we read Mark, telling us about a strange preacher, a real sort of wild man who's out in the wilderness, a man who gets called John the Baptist. And what Mark and Matthew tell us well, they tell us using the words of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, this is the voice of the one in the wilderness saying, prepare the way for the Lord. Matthew and Mark, as they tell the story, they say, John, he is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, and we know what that means. Isaiah says, God is coming. John the Baptist says, Jesus is coming. It's the same thing. This is the fulfillment. This is God himself coming into the world in the person of his son. There's a doctor I know uh, from Pakistan who introduced himself uh, to me a few years ago. Uh, he loves to talk about Jesus. Uh, he himself is a Muslim, and uh, he would love to persuade me to be a Muslim too. I don't know why he chose this week, but he did. He chose this week uh, to be in touch with me again uh, via WhatsApp, and he sent me, I think probably now about 10 links to YouTube videos uh, of people who don't believe that Jesus is God, and he wants me to watch them. I replied by pointing him to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, to say that this isn't something that was invented by a kind of group of church leaders, you know, a few hundred years after Jesus, the idea, oh, well, you know, um, he... Uh, I think he's God. This isn't, this isn't something invented later. This is something we read in Isaiah 700 years before he's born. God is coming, Isaiah promises. And the New Testament tells us not just that he is coming in the future, that he has now come in the person of Jesus, his son. John, the Gospel writer, says of Jesus, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Just like Isaiah said, all people will see it together. God is coming, says Isaiah, for all people. We would say God has come for all people. It's open to all. Whatever our background, whatever our nationality, whatever religious faith or no religious faith that we were brought up in, it's for all of us that Jesus comes as the one who will restore God coming to us all. I think, though, we want to acknowledge, and this is, um, has always been a stumbling block for people, 
that when Jesus came, he didn't look like you'd expect him to from Isaiah chapter 40, did he? The vision here is of an unstoppable God, get the mountains out the way, he's coming, and we're all going to see his glory. It's going to be seen by everyone. How does that work? Well, John will say later in his gospel that the moment where Jesus was the most glorified was the moment that he died on a cross. And you might think, well, how does that fit? Well, how do we see the heart of God in the life and ministry of Jesus? We see it in his teaching. We, we see it in his wonderful miracles, restoring people to new life again. But above and beyond all else, we see the heart of God. When Jesus dies on a cross, we see the holiness of God, that he will not compromise with sin and wrongdoing, but we see the mercy of God, that he himself comes and takes that punishment. He does that doubling, that our sin, my sin, that deserves his punishment, but Jesus comes and takes responsibility for my sin, and he's punished. We see the heart of God, the glory of God, that he should do that for you, for me, for all who put their faith in Jesus and his death for us. That's the why we know this promise of comfort is more than words. It's real. It's wonderful. And we can be even more certain than Isaiah was because we're looking back to an event that's now happened in history. God came like he promised. Verse 5 says, The mouth of the Lord has spoken. That was enough for Isaiah. And it leads us to the next voice in verses 6 to 8, the fact that God's word endures forever, as opposed to people who are like grass, like a flower. Great for a little while, but then gone again. Uh, some people, we've got to say, are very beautiful. Some people, we've got to say, are very talented, very accomplished. They um, establish a business empire from nothing, or they can fill stadiums with their talent. We acknowledge that. But every single person will fade, and then fall to the ground, just like grass, just like a flower. Diana Rigg this week, uh, Chadwick Bosman a couple of weeks ago. So enjoy their talent. Enjoy the movies or the concerts or the inventions. Dream with them about what might lie ahead for the human race, but don't put your trust in them, will you? Not in people and their opinions, particularly when those opinions... Uh, go against God. You don't want to make your choices and your destiny to be linked to the mere humans, do you? Their viewpoints, their ideas, what they say in their movies or their songs, well, particularly if they go against what God says, no, we don't want that. We want to base our lives, our choices, our hopes, our dreams on the word of God that endures forever, don't we? You see, the reason that's such a temptation for all, us too, and think about them back then, they were about to be captured and taken away to a, 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 a land they'd never experienced by, by a conquering army, they were going to settle down in Babylon, and it was going to be a massive danger just to forget everything they'd ever heard about God and say, well, you know, it's over now, let's make a new life and just join in with everybody else. Now, Jeremiah, the next book in the Bible, tells the people 
do settle, do pray for the peace and prosperity of the city you live in, just like we do for London. But Jeremiah, just as Isaiah, but don't become Babylonian. You're still God's people. He's holy. He's different from everyone else. And we're called to become like him. So don't become worldly. Jesus talked about being in the world but not of the world, didn't he? We're called to be like God. His character, his values, not just to join in with everyone else around us. After all, the only thing that will last forever in this world is the Word of God. I think that's the right statement, isn't it? The only thing that's going to last forever, apart from people, we last forever, either with God or not with God. But the only thing that is going to, yeah, is, is what, because this expresses, the, this expresses the Word of God, that, uh, written down for us wonderfully, translated into a language we can access, it expresses the mind, the character, the will, the desire, the, the, the purposes of, of the living God who lasts forever. He's, he's eternal. And so this word that endures forever, that should be the basis of your life and my life. Finally, the reason we can have confidence, verses 9 to 11, is the fact that God shepherds his people. Uh, verse 9, it starts with a huge excitement. This, the voice here is lots of voices. It's the messengers declaring to to, to Jerusalem, your God's coming. Who is he? Verse 10, he's sovereign. Verse 11, he's shepherd. It's a wonderful picture. He's he's powerful. He's sovereign. He's in charge of things. He has the power to transform you and me and anyone who comes to him. But it's also wonderful. It's a picture of tenderness. He's a, a shepherd with sheep, gathering up silly, straying sheep, who often are going off on one, gathering them into his arms, carrying them close to his heart is what's pictured here, meeting the needs of individual people. And so it is that the limitless power of God outworks in the limitless love of God for people, for his people. And of course, again, when we get to the New Testament, we meet Jesus, the Good Shepherd, who lays down his life for the sheep. What's it like to welcome the living God into your life, to base your life on his word, to follow him, to center yourself on him? What's it like? How does he use his power? Like a shepherd in your life and mine. To transform, yes, but to love and to care, always. So the message this morning is of comfort and of hope. If the government does send us to our rooms, as it were, at some point in the winter to slow down the virus, we find comfort not in Netflix, although you may enjoy a good movie, not in food, although, you know, why not have a good meal every now and again? Well, actually three times a day or however many times it is for you. But we don't find our identity in our comfort there. If, we, if we're looking there, it'll, we'll find it empty very soon. We find our comfort in the living God. Who, as we fill our hearts and minds and our ambitions and dreams with him and what he says, we, we allow what he says is important to be our foundation and to lead us and to give us purpose. As we do that, we're coming to our creator 
but we're also coming to the God who has who's done the double for our sins. He's paid for us. Who in Jesus has come into the world himself as saviour for all people, whatever background, whatever culture, whoever we are and whatever we've done. Who is in a changing, uncertain and, and, and fading world, he's the only certainty. His word is the thing that lasts forever. And who, when we come back to him, uses his power in our lives not only to transform us, but also to care for us and to lead us gently like a shepherd with sheep. Shall we just pray as we close? Behold our God seated on the throne, come let us adore him. We do adore you, God of power and might, the sovereign Lord. But we do from the position of just astonishing mercy that we've received from you. Wonder at your grace and favour that you should come, you should speak to us through the years, and that you should call us to come back through Jesus to become part of your people. We wonder at that wonderful love, that wonderful grace. We praise you and we pray that you would indeed lead us and fill us with your spirit this week. In Jesus' name, amen.